0: As we get started this morning, I did want to let you know that uh, sweet Billy McCord went to meet the Lord on uh, Friday night and uh, went peacefully with her family there with her. And so we uh, really celebrate her life and uh, her entrance into the arms of Christ. Uh, What a beautiful testimony her life is. There will be a service tomorrow. It's just a graveside service at 2 o'clock out at the Lubbock Cemetery, and uh, you're invited to come if that... Is something that you you would like to do. The family appreciates your prayers, Uh, Stephen and his family, and uh, Sally uh, as well, Um, but they're doing well. Uh, Their mom had a great testimony of faith. As we uh, continue on in our study of Philippians, we'll notice that this morning, uh, Paul takes a transition or makes a transition in this letter that he writes to the church in Philippi. Uh, up to this point, he has addressed his friends in Philippi with, with warmth and compassion. I hope that you've been able to, to see that in the words that he has written. He, he thanks God in all his remembrance of them and, and always offers prayer with joy in all his prayer for the people in Philippi. In fact, no greater joy does he have than to see them continue to walk in the Lord. And he recalls that they have been with him it, From the first day until now, Lydia and her family, remember, and the Philippian jailer and his family, they're all still standing firm and Paul longs to see them with the affection of Christ Jesus. And Paul knows that they have heard of his condition because, as we are aware, they sent Epaphroditus on behalf of the church to go to Paul to minister and to care for him. And now Paul is sending Epaphroditus back with this letter that we read to let them know that what might have first appeared as an obstacle to the gospel in his imprisonment for the cause of Christ has actually turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. There are many who are trusting in the Lord um, without fear, having far more courage to, to, to speak the word of God. Paul is so encouraged as he observes firsthand the work of God and his hand of redemption around him and he is writing to the Philippians so that they can be encouraged as well. But even in the midst of all the rejoicing there, there are those who continue to oppose Paul and this message of the gospel. Some to be sure even preach Christ out of envy and strife with selfish ambition rather than pure motive thinking to cause Paul distress In the time of his imprisonment. Yet here again. Paul comforts his friends in Philippi. And says God is in control. We must view life. Through the lens of the gospel. Whether in pretense or truth. Paul says Christ is being proclaimed. And in that I will rejoice. He tells them. We must trust in God's sovereignty. His control of all things at all times, for all eternity. And and when we learn to view life through this lens, we can see the work of, of redemption in God's hand throughout the world through what seems hard and difficult and that which seems good. It's not easy, Paul explains. In fact, he tells them, If truth be known, I'd rather be in heaven, for to depart and be with Christ is very much better. Than anything that this life has to offer. But to remain here, he tells them, is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, he tells them, I know that I shall remain for your joy and progress in the faith. This is hard. Paul admits. But we are in this thing together. Now Paul takes that thought and he challenges The Philippian church to stand firm in the same way just as you have been committed to me he says in the same way be devoted to one another for the faith of the gospel before we look at that this morning let's go to the Lord in prayer God we're so grateful for the words of Paul and You inspired on our behalf so that we could be encouraged as he writes about the things that are happening in his life to a church that he knew well, but I pray that they resound in our hearts equally as much as if we were the ones to have received this encouraging letter from Paul, especially this morning as we hear him admonish and encourage and challenge this church in Philippi to stand strong together. For the faith of the gospel and all that he tells them, I pray that we read this as if, because he is, through your spirit, telling us the very same thing. So help us to see that this morning through eyes of faith. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, if you're not already there, turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. If you will, read with me beginning in verse 27. It says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. I'm so thankful for our modern translations of the Bible that take that original text and and convert it into a a language and flow that we can understand with our English-speaking ears. But oftentimes, when that happens, we lose some of the depth of what is being communicated by the writer of the letter. This morning is an example of that in those first words that we read in verse 27. When we read them, they say to us, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But if we were to read those more true to the original text, it would say this, only worthy of the gospel of Christ live as citizens that's what it would say it's the basically it's basically the same idea but but i think the original text really pervert preserves the thought process that paul carries in to this part of the letter that he now writes you see he's just finished talking about the conflict that he had in his might mind desiring to depart to be with christ for that is very much better he says But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for for the sake of others. And and so, convinced of this conclusion, Paul says, I know that I shall remain and continue on with you for your progress and joy in the faith. But then he says, When I come to you, whether I come to you or not, may I hear that you are living as citizens. (laughs) Citizens of what? Maybe he was talking about this idea of Roman citizenship that was so predominant in Philippi that we've talked about before. This is a Roman colony and that Roman citizenship was was pervasive throughout these people. And so those words would have rung true to him. So, so perhaps Paul was saying in that context, have that same loyalty and devotion to God as a Roman citizen has to Caesar. That would make sense. And, and it would fit into the context with which he wrote but i think it's deeper i think what paul does here is that he has described this struggle his desire to depart to be with christ and he's concluded this is not our home (laughs) we may live on earth for the sake of others but as followers of jesus christ we are citizens of heaven The reason I believe that this is Paul's intent is because later on in the letter, he will make this explicit. In chapter 3, verse 20, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This world is not our home, but right now, this is where we live. So while we are here, let's live as citizens of heaven, not as citizens of heaven of this earth. And then he explains, a citizen of heaven lives a life worthy of the gospel. Once again, that sounds great, doesn't it? Live a life worthy of the gospel. But but what exactly does that mean? I want you to watch how Paul explains as he unfolds that answer in the following verses. He says, so whether I come to you or remain absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The term standing firm is, is, is a military term. It has this picture of uniformed soldiers standing side by side, shoulder to shoulder, in complete solidarity. And as he describes this, he, he talks about them being of one spirit and, and of one mind, we all know enough about the military to appreciate the, the focus and, and camaraderie that exists among our soldiers. They train together. They sweat together. They eat, sleep, drink. They struggle through difficult times together. Through the best and the worst of times so that in the end they may develop this military mind being of one spirit and one mind that allows them to stand together together. The most fiercest of battles. A good example of this is the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. At this point in the war, the the German army has become desperate. And and as a result, they combined a lot of their forces together to put uh, up a major offensive assault. It was kind of like going all in in a poker game. It was one of the the biggest uh, attacks that German would put together. The Allied forces saw this coming, but it was a bit of a surprise, so they scrambled to get things together and put troops in in place in order to hold off this German assault. It became somewhat chaotic, and as a result, the 101st Airborne Division was the only division able to set up a a stronghold in a very strategic city called Bastogne. And, And before they knew it, this single Allied force had been completely surrounded by eight divisions of heavily fortified German soldiers. Everyone knew that this city was a turning point in the war. Whoever captured this city could at best win the war by doing so, and at the very least have a very strong advantage moving forward. It was that important. So the Allied forces dug in. It was literally, literally machine guns against German tanks. They were completely cut off from supplies and and, and reinforcements. It was brutally cold. And because they had to rush in to take this position, most of them didn't have the gear that they they needed. Their food rations were were dwindling and their ammunition supply was diminishing faster than the, the food was. But they stood together. Each day, the German offensive squeezed in tighter and tighter. To the point, at one point in this battle, the German forces sent over a note offering the Allied forces an opportunity to surrender. They refused to offer, choosing instead to stand together. The casualties were huge in this battle, but miraculously, this single division of allied forces was able to hold off the enemy against insurmountable odds. They stood together. Until that glorious day when the cloud cover that had blanketed them up to this point began to diminish, and the skies were then filled with aircraft that dropped in supplies and reinforcements. They stood together, and on that day, they were re-supported to be able to then push back the Germans and ultimately win the war. Can you imagine what that day would have been like as they were holding their ground to see those planes flying in and dropping from the sky supplies and reinforcements? Talk about a day of redemption. The Allied forces went on to, to win that battle and ultimately the war because they stood together. And that's the imagery that Paul has when he uses those words in our passage this morning. It's a oneness of solidarity and purpose. A willingness to stand together and refuse retreat in faithful obedience to the calling. Not as individuals, but striving together, side by side, for the faith of the gospel. There is... No power greater than the power of God's people standing in unity with one another. The faith of the gospel is proclaimed by our solidarity. But his words also teach us that the greatest hindrance to the gospel is just the opposite. Dissension. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I really think that the Germans knew that the Allied forces probably wouldn't surrender. But maybe what they hoped to do by delivering that note was to create dissension and doubt, arguments about what should be done, confusion about the best course of action. And our enemy does the same to us. In fact, I would suggest that the greatest hindrance to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world today is not the opposition we face, it is the jealousy and dissension that exists from within the church. And this shouldn't be a surprise. Paul tells us when he writes in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Not Christ." After them, And we've already seen this in our passage uh, in Philippians where it says that they had selfish ambition rather than pure motives. So how do we live a life worthy of the gospel? Paul tells us, stand together, protect the unity of the church, proclaim in unison the testimony of our faith in Jesus Christ. And then Paul says in verse 28, in no way be alarmed. By your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. Stand firm in unity. Stand firm against your opponents. The word for alarmed here talks about someone who's startled or, or caught off guard. It's a term used to describe horses that are jittery right before a stampede takes place. So Paul is saying, don't be startled, be at ease. Be informed. Turn, if you will, to John chapter 15. I want us to look at Jesus' words to his disciples, uh, teaching them to the same thing that is being mentioned by Paul here. John chapter 15. Look at verse 18 with me. John 15, verse 18. says this if the world hates you you know that it has hated me before it hated you if you were of the world the world would love its own but because you are not of the world but i chose you out of this world therefore the world hates you don't be alarmed don't be surprised this is not your home you're living in enemy territory that's a fact Turn again now, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is Paul writing to young Timothy, preparing him for ministry. And let's see what he has to say about this very subject. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. And he says here to Timothy, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be Persecuted. So both Jesus and Paul warn us, don't be surprised. As Eugene uh, Eugene Peterson paraphrases it, he says, anyone who wants to live all out for Christ is in for a lot of trouble. There's no getting around it. When you're a citizen of heaven, living in enemy territory, chances are you will face persecution And struggle. Don't be alarmed. Don't be caught off guard. Stand firm. Because here's what's going to happen. This is a great passage. I want you to look at 2 Thessalonians with me. 2 Thessalonians. Just a little bit past Philippians. 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1. I want you to look at verse 4 with me. The thing that Paul alludes to in Philippians, he says there's a day of destruction, which is a sign of destruction, and then he talks about a sign of salvation. I believe this passage in Second Thessalonians expands on that very thought and helps us see perhaps a little more clearly what Paul is alluding to in Philippians. Read with me, beginning in verse 4. It says, "...therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure." This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. It makes me think back to that day when the, the clouds broke over Bastogne, and what a glorious sight it must have been for those planes to fly over with, with supplies and, and reinforcements. Can, can you imagine the elation of those men on that day when they saw that falling from the sky? The same is going to be true for us. One day, the clouds will part. And every eye will see him. Those who know him will rejoice. And those who rejected him will mourn. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the day of your redemption. And Paul says, stand firm. Because that day is coming. God is the final authority and our lives rest in his hands. No matter how hard it is in the moment, there is no better place than to be in the hand of our sovereign God. Paul closes our passage in verse 29 with these words. He says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Most of us don't have trouble with that first part. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a, a gift from God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. Our ability to believe is a, a gracious gift from God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins and dead people don't move. Were it not for the grace of God, no one could be saved. But is that a second part? That gives us pause. Paul says, just as grace has been given to you in order that you may believe, so also suffering is a gift from God from this same gracious hand. So, how in the world is suffering a gracious gift from God? If we were honest, most of us look at it as persecution and not privilege, of punishment and not privilege. Well, I want us to think about this together, because I think as we look at Scripture, this will unfold, and we'll see, perhaps, what Paul had in mind. To do this, turn over to, to 1 Peter, chapter 4. 1 Peter, chapter 4, towards the back of your Bible over by 1 John. and 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 12. Read with me, beginning in chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Uh, There again, don't be alarmed. Which comes upon you for your testing and all, and, and as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. One of the reasons suffering is a gift is because it confirms our faith. You remember how Jesus promised that persecuted would become, and it happens when we are identified with him. They hated me, Jesus said, and so they will hate those who follow me. Paul said "At some, not some, but all, all who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. And now Peter says, suffering is a blessing because it confirms that the Spirit of God rests upon you. Remember, you're citizens of heaven. This is not your home. In fact, Satan is the prince of this world, and so... That means you're living in enemy territory. If you just blend in and are never recognized because of your association with your Savior, something is wrong. You are living in a world where you're either refusing to speak His truth or to live His truth or both. If life this side of heaven is not difficult at times, You are way too comfortable in a place that is not your home. Paul told the Philippians, To remain in the flesh will mean fruitful labor for me. It's work. It's difficult. It's not mainstream. And the fact that you are suffering is evidence that His Spirit is within you. Just this week, my son Graham and I had a long conversation About some challenges that he's having at school. He was wanting to stand up for what was right, and he believed that that was true, but it was not the popular choice. He was struggling. No, he was suffering for his effort to do the right thing. At one point of the conversation, he said, Dad, this is too hard. I just want Jesus to come back so we can go home. I don't want to do this anymore. And I said, Graham, you're right. This is hard. And I don't want to be here either because to depart to be with Christ is very much better. But it's hard because you're doing the right thing. And God is strong enough to carry you through. Trust Him, son. Trust Him. Suffering confirms our faith. And suffering is also a blessing because it deepens our fellowship with God. I just have to believe that that everyone in this room, at some point in your life, has experienced the fact that through the most difficult times in your life, you have grown closer to God. That's true, isn't it? Suffering makes you stronger. Suffering teaches you things you didn't even know you needed to learn. Suffering strips you of self-sufficiency and makes you find your hope in Christ alone. I think Job is probably the best example He suffered more than any man I know. And in the end, listen to what he says in Job chapter 42, verse 5. He says this, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Did you understand what he just said? I want you to think about this. Because Job never physically set eyes on God. But yet he just said, I've seen God. How can this be true? Well, this is how. Before all the calamity happened in Job's life, he knew about God. In fact, he trusted in God. He was a righteous man. But now through his struggle, he says, I know God. I have seen his hand at work. My faith has moved from knowledge to experience, from head to heart through suffering. Suffering is a blessing because it deepens our fellowship and our experiencing of what it means to know God. Suffering is a blessing because it deepens our fellowship. But, but another reason suffering is a blessing is because of something Paul has already said in the letter to the, to the Philippians when he mentioned to them that his imprisonment for the cause of Christ has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. That Christ, even now, was being exalted in his body, whether by life or by death. Suffering is important because it is one of the ways that God works to carry out his salvation in the world. You see, Paul recognizes that that the way of suffering is often the path that God's redemption is unfolded. It, It was true for Christ, and through his experience, Paul understands that it was true for him. He's participating in Christ's suffering in order to advance the work of God's salvation to rescue the souls of men. Paul teaches that suffering is a blessing because through it we are counted worthy to share in Christ's affliction to carry out his work of redemption in the world in which we live. Suffering is a blessing because it confirms our faith suffering is a blessing because it deepens our fellowship suffering is a blessing because it is through that that God redeems the world and rescues the souls of men but there's also another reason suffering is the place where grace abounds this is a good verse let's look up second corinthians chapter 4 together second corinthians chapter 4 verse 16 Back in verse 8, Paul has already said, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in this body the dying of Jesus, the life of Jesus, so that we may be, may be manifest in our body. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but through... Paul said something similar in Romans when he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You and I are going to have to accept this one on faith. Fred and, and Billy and Jerry Avery, they know the full story on this one. But we only see half of this. But we need to know that Paul is telling us that No matter how bad it gets here, it cannot compare to what waits us in heaven. By God's grace, the suffering we are experiencing here is producing a celebration of victory in heaven with Christ that is far beyond anything we could ever imagine. We can't see it completely, but we have to believe it. Paul knows that all these things are true because he is willing to view life through the lens of the gospel. He sees that that God is in control and that the outcome has been determined. Knowing this, he says, stand firm in unity, side by side, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm against your opponents, he says. You are citizens of heaven living in enemy territory, but hold your ground. One day soon, the sky will open, and that will be the day of your redemption. When your Savior comes for your deliverance, just as He promised, your eternal salvation in Him. Until then, life is hard, suffering is a promise. But the grace of God is able to redeem our affliction and turn it into blessing, using it to confirm our faith, to to deepen our fellowship to advance His work of redemption and to give us grace upon grace in the glory that is yet to come. Stand firm, Melanie Park, side by side, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray. As I close this in prayer, I'm going to read uh, out of Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. I want you to just close your eyes. And picture in your mind this day that is promised for you, his saints. It says, after these things, I heard something like a loud voice of great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who has who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bond servants on her. And a second time they said, hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living, living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like a loud voice of great multitude like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Before we depart, stand up with me, please, and we're going to say those words together, that last part. It says in that passage, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let's say that together. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Amen. Have a great weekend.